invite you to turn in your Bibles with me to Mark chapter 12. have a kind of a sketch outline. Um, we're getting premium paper today because um, somebody left in the print. All of the, no, everything else was gone. So this is all that was left. So I guess that means you're going to have to pin it to your refrigerator or something. I'm going to leave a few back All right, um, so to get started, I, I think it's appropriate. This is a passage with a lot of questions, though that's really kind of the structure of the passages, questions and answers. It's kind of like a, a Q&A with Jesus, but not a, um, not a friendly Q&A. Um, so it's more like a pre-trial proceedings uh, kind of Q&A, but... Um, I'm going to start with a question for you to just get thinking about what I think kind of moves our hearts and minds towards the, the theme that we're going to be looking at this morning. So my question for you is, uh, what kind of relationship do you have with authority? What kind of relationship do you have with authority? Um, and I don't just mean like think of a specific authority, but I'm thinking about the concept of authority. What's your relationship with authority? We have different generations in this room. And one of the significant markers of the values of different generations is attitudes towards authority, right? Um, I, I think we, we can see that when we look at an older generation, when we look at a younger generation, that kind of thing. I distinctly remember, I think I was 10 years old. I don't know exactly how old I was. But I remember when uh, Jamie Lyle came over to my house. And he told me a story about something that happened at the middle school in Charlotte, Michigan. He told me about a rebellion, a strike, essentially, that the students at the middle school oh did against their teachers. And as a 10-year-old boy who grew up in a home where loving, firm authority was exercised, I was scandalized by this idea that students in a classroom would rise up in rebellion against their teachers across the entire school, and that they would think it was a good thing, right? Um, what's that? My, my. My, my, yeah. And, and yet it's the norm in our world today at this point. Um, I, was, I was scandalized by two elements of that, though. One, that students would be so bold as to do such a thing. But two... That was probably in my experience, at least what I can remember, the first time that I got the idea that sometimes authorities aren't always to be trusted, which unfortunately is actually a reality, right? We have seen it far too many times that there are many authorities that aren't worthy of our trust, that shouldn't be respected. And so what are we to do? <laughs> um, on the one hand, we know that respecting authority is good and right and godly, on the other hand, we know that authorities are made of the same stuff as us. So like one philosophical question that is asked is, who will guard the guards themselves, right? Who will be the authority over the authorities? Um, that's a, 
um, an endless loop difficulty that we can face when we think about these things. So with that kind of, kind of just getting our minds thinking about um, things in general, now we're going to pivot a little bit and look at the section in, I didn't grab one of those sheets. Um, let me go grab your, you can keep those. I'll take yours and I'll hand you this one. Okay. Um, so on the right side of the handout, there is a, a kind of a map of the context that we've been looking at from a broader perspective. We're not going to walk through this in detail, but I want you to think about the situation that our passage is in. So you see that, that larger box that has larger print Verse, uh, chapter 12, 13, down to 34. That's the passage we're going to look at. But let's look at where it fits overall in all of what we've been seeing lately in Mark. So my, my question for you here at this point about the context is, what is the atmosphere like where we are in Mark right now? What's the, what's the atmosphere? What does, what does it feel like in the room or in the temple area right now it, with all that's going on? So just looking at, um, you know, what's happened, right? Remember, Jesus cleanses the temple, starting, just starting going back that far into chapter 11, and then going on down. I'm not going to go through this context quite yet, but I just want to hear what your thoughts, like, what does it feel like right now in the area Jesus is ministering in, in the temple area? Tense. Tense. That's a great word. Good. What else? How else would you describe it? Rebellious. Rebellious. Good. Okay. Hostility. Hostility. Right? So we do have a Q&A here, but it's with a hostile questioners. They're, they're not asking questions with good intent. Right? What else could you say? Maybe we could draw a parallel to something that's going on in our world today right now in the United States. There might be an election happening eventually, right? And that kind of political tension and trying to, trying to trip the opponent up, right? Trying to catch them in their, in their, in their error, bring out their dirty laundry, that kind of thing. Okay. Two ideas and very divisive. Yes. Yes, all of that. All of that. So we feel the weight of that atmospheric pressure on this moment in the story. Um, there's debate, there's conflict. You could, war is too strong of a word in one sense, but on a spiritual level, on a relational level, it's not too strong. You, you have legal argumentation with intensity. Uh, you have trial, a politically charged trap. That's the kind of context we're in right now, right? So I, I do think looking at the context is really interesting here to see there's a flow to what's happening and there's a flow to what Mark is doing. So Jesus cleanses the temple. That kind of, he goes into the temple. I mean, there's several things that happen there, but that's kind of like what gets this all started. I mean, the triumphal entry kind of gets all this started too. He curses the fig tree, which is symbolic, which is pointing toward Jesus saying, 
that the Jewish leaders are not bearing the fruit that they should be, right? Like Nathan pointed out. And then the Jewish leaders come with their first question. You see that in chapter 11, 27 through 33. They come with their first question. And what's their question? That Jesus responded with that. He asked them about John the Baptist. But they ask, who gave you this authority? By Where does the authority you're doing these things and saying these things come from? We want an answer on that. So they start with that question. Is that a friendly question? <laughs> right? That's the kind of question that students ask the substitute teacher when they come in. You know, like, you're not my teacher. Don't, don't tell me to do these things. Right? Um, so they ask that question. Jesus doesn't answer it. He asks the John the Baptist question. It's a trick question because he knows he's got them trapped. If they answer this way, they're in trouble. If they answer that way, they're in trouble. So they refuse to answer. They can't respond to Jesus' trap question, right? That was Jesus' first question. Then Jesus tells a parable about the Jewish leaders, and it's not a pretty picture, right? It's a terrible picture of who they are and what they're about. Then we come back, and now we get three questions from the Jewish leaders. So boom, 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 three questions in a row. That's what we're going to look at today. And they continue, in my opinion, the issue about authority. But let's keep on looking down just to see the big picture. Let's see what we're going to look at next week and then even in some subsequent weeks. After this, we're going to see Jesus come back with another question. And it's going to be this question about David called the Messiah his Lord. So he's not just David's son. Who is he really? Right? He's going to ask it. It's a really interesting question. We'll look at it next week. But it kind of gives you a picture of, again, we're talking about authority, the identity of Jesus, that kind of thing. And Jesus asked that question back to the religious leaders after their three questions here. Then we have Jesus contrasting the Jewish leaders. He describes them in a very negative way. He contrasts them with a poor widow. Condemns the religious leaders, commends the poor widow who puts in you know, just a few pennies, gives all that she can in the, in the temple offering. Then we see all of chapter 13, essentially, Jesus teaching about the future, about the end times, about coming judgment. And then in chapter 14, we move into the plot to kill Jesus, the Passover, the Last Supper, and all of those events that surround uh, the Lord's passion. So that is kind of our, our big picture here, as, we are, um, as we're getting into these three questions. But I think it's really helpful for us to recognize we got a power struggle here. There's a question of authority that really is at hand. So really, the first question, by, whom, by whose authority, kind of governs over everything else. Because everything else, every question, in one way or another, is intended perhaps to undermine Jesus' authority, demonstrate his lack of authority, and yet he does for us the exact opposite. Does Jesus really have the authority to make the demands that he does? So here Jesus is asked a series of three, three questions, and I think these three questions, they function uniquely like spotlights. So you'll see there in, in the notes, I tried to use an image that kind of looks like a spotlight on a person. These three questions, and really the answers that Jesus gives, they function like spotlights. Let's just 
preview real quick what happens here, right? We're familiar with these questions that are asked. The first question is, should we pay taxes or not, right? And what does Jesus famously say? You can remember that. If I didn't have it on the sheet, you'd remember it. It's such a crisp, memorable statement. And what these three questions and the answers are, there's a technical term that refers to them as pronouncement stories. And I hear that and I read that and I'm like, what's a pronouncement story? It doesn't really, like, I, I, it doesn't mean anything to me. It, it's, it's, a, it's a moment here where Jesus makes a truth claim. It, it's a moment where these stories are like, um, as Jesus is posed a question, he almost gives a, a proverb-like answer to the, to the question. These, um, these pronouncement stories, Jesus makes this clear, bold, memorable, crisp statement. It's like the, the theme of an entire sermon packed into one sentence, right? And it's a spotlight not just on the truth that he's trying to communicate, but it's actually a spotlight on himself, his nature, and his unrivaled authority. So what we're going to do this morning is not delve in too deeply to each of the, I mean, like, really what we have here is three sermons um, in these three questions and answers, right? And each of them deserves their own attention and their own focus. And it's almost like there's three separate themes. And we're not actually going to focus as much on those as what they accomplish for us. We've got a spotlight on Jesus, and that spotlight is calling, inviting us to trust in him. Each of these sermons, while they could stand on their own for their individual themes and lessons, together they tell a bigger story. Together they show us how Jesus shines as the only authority fully worthy of our trust. That's that's our theme this morning. These three spotlights shine on Jesus and they point us to him in a way that help us answer that opening question we, we talked about. What's our relationship with authority? They shine on Jesus showing him that he is the only authority that is fully worthy of our trust. So that's what we're going to see from these three separate questions and answers, exchanges between Jesus and the Jewish leaders there in his day. So let's jump into the first question where Jesus gets asked questions about government, about paying taxes. So let's read verses 13 through 17. So it begins, it says, and they. So it's probably talking about the Sanhedrin, the Jewish leaders from the prior context. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion. For you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? Or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. And Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. 
and they marveled at him. And so should we. That's, that's what we're here to do this morning. Let's, let's look at the setup for this first question. Just looking at verses 13 and 14 for a second. You, when you look at those verses, I want you to, um, to help me think about what's being communicated here. What stands out to you in verses 13 and 14? Well, their intentions are made known. Yeah. Mark, their intentions are made known. Mark tells us, it's a trap, right? What else, what else does he say? Okay, they're not coming with sincere respect. But they sound like they do, right? Don't they say some true things about Jesus? Ironically, they say much that's true about Jesus right? And not true about themselves. They do care what people think about them very much, way too much, right? They are not true, good teachers, as they describe Jesus to be. So it's full of irony that they're describing Jesus accurately, even as they're just trying to, what do we call that? Butter them up? You know, it's totally insincere, disingenuous. So it's hypocritical. It's also really interesting to me how this trap that they're setting for Jesus is so similar to the trap that Jesus set for them with John the Baptist. When he asked the John the Baptist question, he knew it was a catch-22. If they say John the Baptist came from God, you know, then they have to accept his message. If they don't, the people don't like it, and it's an unpopular response, right? Well, here in this kind of same scenario, Jesus is stuck. They couldn't answer Jesus' trick question, trap question. They refused. They said, we're, we're not going to answer because we know it's, it, it's trouble. So what's Jesus going to do with their trap trick question? It's as if here Jesus says to them, nice trap. Here, let me put your foot in it for you. There is this, in, in this passage, in these three questions, there's this kind of like, Jesus receives the blow and sends it back at him, right? There's this kind of continuation of the turning of the tables in the temple, but not the literal furniture, now here, the, the metaphorically, the theology and the, the values and, and those things. So what Jesus does here as he invites them to produce a coin themselves. Um, it's, just, it's just rich, full of irony. Um, we don't know for sure which Caesar was on this coin. It could have been the current or it could have been the prior. If it was the prior, e either way, that inscription on there generally was giving divine attributes to the Caesar, to the king, right? So it's it's a blasphemous coin. Um, to a Jew, it's an offense, right? And, and yet, it's, it's the religious leaders who pull out the coin. They're the ones who have the money, right? They're the ones who have influence and sway in their, in their world. Jesus doesn't have the money in his pocket. I, I don't think it was necessarily, I mean, like, I don't think it was wrong for a Jew to be carrying Roman currency necessarily, but 
Um, so I'm not saying the Jewish leaders were wrong to have it on them, but um, again, the irony is just you can you can almost taste it in the air. And so so Jesus, you know, like I don't know. I mean, it, it just gives me chills every time I read this story, and I, I don't know how best to to emphasize and describe and call attention to it. Um, Recently, I read an interview by a New Testament scholar, and he was asked, what was one of the things about Jesus that really strikes him as he studied the New Testament? His answer was Jesus' capacity as a teacher. He wasn't downplaying Jesus' divinity. Uh, He wasn't denying that element of it. But he was highlighting Jesus' authority, just like Mark does. There is a, a genius there's a glory, even a glow about the quality of Jesus' teaching here. Um, Kristen teaches high school math, and she and I end up in a lot of conversations about education and how to try and learn those kids good, you know? Um, invariably, when we talk about the teaching art and trade, she, when she talks about successes that she has found in the classroom, what does that look like? You know what it looks like? It looks like taking really abstract and complex concepts, making them tangible and, uh, and simple for their, her students to understand. And, and is there someone better at doing that than our Lord, as demonstrated in this very moment? I mean, it, it's a difficult thing to explain the interaction between varying levels of authority in our lives and how that plays out. Jesus says, bring me a coin, Give what's Caesar's Caesar's and give God's what's God's. Just like that, he cut through all of the difficulty of the problem in a a masterful way that just invites our worship. So here, as Jesus calls for this coin, points to the image on it, he, he is showing us his ability and his authority as a teacher in a way that I, I, I think that if it, if it doesn't make you want to shout, if it doesn't make you want to weep, if it doesn't make you want to write a poem or hold a celebratory dinner right now, then I, I think you're not quite feeling what you should be as you look at this spotlight on Jesus. Here, spotlight number one shines on Jesus, showing us that he is the only authority fully worthy of our trust. He shows us his absolute authority as a teacher. He shows us his command of politics and government. He shows us his ability to take the worst his enemies throw at him and then subversively turn it on its head. Jesus still is not done flipping over the furniture in the temple. I think think a response that we should have to this is just an attitude of prayer and praise. Just thanking God for the glory and the goodness of our Lord's teaching here. Um. So, our theme is focused on these spotlights calling attention to Jesus' trustworthiness. But I think it's worth taking a pause for a moment. There's so much we could talk about about this, this teaching Jesus gives and how it impacts how we think about our relationship to human authorities. There's so much we could do in our time here to talk about that. But we have two more significant passages to look at, so we don't have time. Yet, yeah, one comment that I want to make. Um, 
when we think about politics today, we need to follow the example of this passage and not find our anchor for determining good or evil in politics within the created order. Okay? The Republican Party, the Democratic Party, are what? They're human constructs, right? They are, they are a representation of the values of men. And no Christian should embrace wholeheartedly anything like, I mean, we should render to man what is man's and to God what is God's. So, so we should anchor our values in all political governmental discussions in a value system that asks the bigger question. We, we don't stop at, what is my allegiance to my party here? We go further and we say, what is my allegiance to God? Which is what you have to do when, you know, there's a teenage kid who has a dad who says, you can't go to church. And he's a believer, right? Like, he's got he's to do this assessment of, what's my allegiance to my dad as my human authority? And what's my allegiance to God? And we need to do that kind of discerning assessment as we think about politics. Right? So there, I, I stepped in the topic nobody wants to step in, but Jesus did. So I think we're safe. Um, let's go on to the second spotlight on Jesus as he's asked questions about resurrection. Okay, uh, so this is, a, this is a fun one, right? This crazy story about uh, seven brothers who, um, who marry uh, the, the first brothers, the first deceased brother's wife. So let's, let's read through it and then look at how Jesus' answer puts a spotlight on his authority and his trustworthiness. So, in verse 18, the Sadducees now, they came to him who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third, likewise. I'm glad that they stopped there and then jumped to, and the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, <clears throat> which we don't believe in, right? When they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had had her as wife. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For, for when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. <laughs> I love that last sentence. You are quite wrong. Um, so once again here, we have this kind of pronouncement story. Remember, the pronouncement story, what is it doing? It's this, it's this story that takes you along and then shines a spotlight on this last declaration. He's not the God of the dead. He's the God of the living. And that shines this light on Jesus' identity for us, showing us his authority and 
his trustworthiness. But let's again notice some things about the question, right? Look at this question again. What can you tell me about the question that the Sadducees are asking Jesus here? It's not a real question. They don't, they don't even believe in resurrection. So, right. you know. Right. So they reach this point where in the resurrection, they like this fantasy land that you're right, living in, right. what, how would this work? So they're t- entirely skeptical. It's an it's a antagonistic, hostile question. It's not sincere. And it's highly speculative, right? Like seven brothers? I mean, there's not that many families that have that many brothers. And really, they all died? Like, this is just absurd. And they're using this absurd question to try and show that the resurrection is absurd. And, and Jesus actually demonstrates some absurdity, absurdity on their side in a very rich way here. Um, they, the topic at hand is this concept. It's called a leveret marriage. Leveret marriage, which was taught by Moses in the Old Testament, we see it maybe most clearly kind of in, in tradition happening in the Ruth-Boaz story, right? Um, it's very unlikely that in Jesus' day, this practice was still occurring. It, it doesn't appear that they were actually still even practicing this at that point in Jewish history and Jewish culture. So it's even more... It's even more um, insincere of a question, even as they, as they ask it. It's hard for us to wrap our, our minds around this kind of law and instruction that was in, in the Old Testament. The best thing I can do to try and help, help us start to understand it a little bit better is um, the importance of Israel's identity as it was related to inheritance in the land of promise made the having an heir who possessed that land a very important thing for that family. Even remember that story of the, I'm going to get the details wrong. Do you remember the story of the, um, the was it a month? It was a, a group of sisters, like five sisters who had no inheritance in the land with an heir. Uh, now I'm forgetting it. And there had to be provision made for them uh, for that. So it's, it's a, just a, a cultural value system that we're not that familiar with. Um, but it was... It made, it made sense in Moses' day. Okay. You see it in Genesis 38, too. Judah's sons, um, you know, God kills the first one, and, you know, it's not done well, but the, but the concept is there yeah. in Genesis 38. Yeah. I'm trying to... It's like he goes to Canaan, marries a Canaanite woman. He has three sons. The first one marries. Yes. God yes. kills him. Yes. For doing wrong, the first mm-hmm. son, second son marries. Yeah, is deceitful. Right, you know, right, right. Bit. Yeah, yeah. So, so there's there's those those examples for us. So even though the the example and the the, the situation is culturally different from distant from us, mm-hmm. um, still what Jesus does with it, you notice his answer. How much does Jesus really talk about leveret marriage in his answer? None. He doesn't say anything about it in his response, right? He basically gives us he basically gives us two responses to this. The first response can be a little bit unsettling, like 
you know, did he just say that there's no, mar- like, marriage relationships are disbanded and there's, you're not, you know, you won't even know your spouse anymore in heaven? Is, is that what he's saying? You know, I, what Jesus is really telling us is, your, you Sadducees, your assessment of the future eternal state, as if it's just a continuation of life here, is totally wrong. That's what he's getting at. He, he's saying, he's saying your, your, um, your value system is just anchored in the here and now, the physicality of, of this world. You can't even imagine that in the future. It's like, it's like calculus students trying to do their problems using basic pre-algebra equations that, ha- you know, that it, it just doesn't connect. There's no, there's no grid or car- um, category that you can use to, to get you there. Um, so that's the first part of Jesus' answer. The second part of Jesus' answer gets into verse 26, as for the dead being raised, which is really what they were asking about, even though they didn't really ask about it. Jesus attacks their presuppositions here. He goes to the root, and he uses two simple tools to do that. He uses basic grammar, and he uses a basic Bible story. He's like, wait, haven't you ever read about Moses and the burning bush? Which is kind of like saying, you know, haven't you ever heard about Moses in the basket on the Nile? Like this little kid story, right? Like there is a kind of, this is absurd, you know, the law? You're the teachers of the law as he's, as he's going after them here. So here in spotlight number two, uh, Jesus, uh, he takes like, uh, you know, again, we could spend a lot of time talking about what Jesus does with Old Testament revelation because like, like Dan taught several weeks ago about inspiration, what Jesus does here where he, he takes this text from the Old Testament and he focuses its meaning in a way that, um, that gets down to the grammar that's used. Is it a present tense verb or a past tense verb? It matters. Um, and he, he calls that out to say that uh, Abraham and, and, and Isaac and Jacob, uh, their current existence, like God is still their God in the present tense. That was true during Moses' time. It's true now. I mean, you actually had the, the transfiguration happen, right? And, and it will be, in one sense, even more true in the ultimate final resurrection. So Jesus cuts through their, their attacking question, and again, this spotlight shines on him as the only authority fully worthy of our trust. He shows us, he shows us that with his absolute authority as an interpreter of the Old Testament. He shows us that with his insight into the presuppositions of skeptics. He shows us that with his ability to take the worst his enemies throw at him and turn it on its head. So once again, I think we, were, we should respond in the same way. Um, as we see this spotlight on Jesus, we should delight, rejoice, worship. And we should be careful just to take one warning from this passage. We should be warned not to make the same mistake as the Sadducees. And assume that life in heaven is just a continuation of life of the same nature as life on earth. All right, last of all, and probably, probably the most important text of all of these three, and we have like three minutes left. We have Jesus asks a question 
And I, I, I have a strange way of saying it here in the notes. It's a question on life, on the meaning of life. Now, you, you won't see that in the text, right? This is a question about the greatest command. But I, I think it's interesting to think about the nature of this question. So you remember what happens. I'm going to just have to do some quick summary to close here, right? A man comes to him, a scribe, and he asks Jesus this question. Why does he ask the question? Because he sees that Jesus has answered so well. So we're still in this animosity, hostility scenario, but is the question he asks, what's the greatest command? Is it the same in its nature as the other two questions? It's, it's not speculative, like the other one was. And, and it's, it's not necessarily driving to fully attack Jesus. There's a measure of sincerity to it, maybe not fully sincere. Like, this was a question that was actually being discussed by theologians at that time. We have historical record indicating what several different authors, um, rabbis from that time gave in response to this question. I think this question is similar to the kinds of questions that theologians and Christians ask today. Have you heard somebody ask the question or read a book that's saying, what, answering the question, what is the gospel? Like the book by Mark Gilbert of that title? It's a great question. It really is, right? Or have you heard people ask the question, what is the central biblical theme that covers all of the themes of the Bible? What's boy, the Bible about? Boy, there's a lot of questions like that being asked today by theologians. And there's different schools of thought, right? I think this question is more like that kind of question. It's kind of like, what's the one ring to rule them all in our understanding of the meaning of life? And Jesus' response, again, is unrivaled in its beauty. Nobody had answered this question in this way. There is actually an author, a rabbi, who previously said that loving others as yourself, something to that effect, was the, the sum of the whole law. So, so he got close, but he, nobody ever brought these two concepts together. Um, during our Thursday discussion, Bill pointed out that the answer that Jesus gives here very nicely summarizes the Ten Commandments for us, the first half and the second half, right? Um, that, that he really gets the whole law wrapped up in these two statements. And you could actually argue that when he answers the first question, what is the greatest, it actually covers them all, right? Because there's there's simultaneously a priority to it. Love God first. Love God comes first. But it's not alone. And later, the Apostle John is going to make this very explicit for us. Based on the teaching of Jesus here, and John is going to say, you, you don't love God if you do not love others. Right? So there is an integral relationship between them. One comes first, but you don't have the one without the other. And so this teaching that Jesus gives becomes the textbook for the later church. Um, friends, we, we can't spend time on social media or time Saturday morning at McDonald's with old-time retirees without hearing people tell us this is the key to a, a good, meaningful life. It doesn't matter where you go. You're going to hear recommendations for these things about what really matters, about how to be happy and successful. But can any of that wisdom hold a candle to what Jesus says here in summary of the law? If we would live this way, 
wholeheartedly devoted to our, in our love for God and selflessly loving others. How much help would we have in our lives facing the problems that we face? Um, this, this text just invites us to meditate and repent of how far our lives often re- resemble these two kinds of love. And again, a whole sermon here from this text could be preached. But what we want to do is we want to point the spotlight on Jesus again, as this passage does, shining on him as the only authority fully worthy of our trust. He shows us this with his unrivaled ability to summarize the meaning of life in a single phrase. He shows us his trustworthy authority with his insight into the most fundamental problems in our lives. Our selflessness, our selfishness, our our lack of love for God. He shows us this with his ability to take the worst his enemies throw at him and subversively turn it on its head and still remain civil, even lovingly kind to this man who has asked this question. It, Jesus here continues to turn the furniture over in the temple, and I trust in some way in our hearts and our lives as well. Let's pray. God, we are grateful for these three questions that were asked, even as they were not necessarily asked with sincere motives, because of the opportunity that you used them for, that you presented them for, for this spotlight to be shined, shown upon our Lord for his glorious authority and the trustworthiness of that authority. Lord, there are so many things that occur in our lives that can cause us to stumble and doubt in unbelief when we think about Jesus. And I pray that meditating on these three answers that he gives would would help us now in this moment And then it would be something that we could return to, to just wash ourselves in the the glow and the glory of his great authority displayed here. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.